0: Why things go wrong and how to put them right. And this is part seven. Uh, We're still on determining right from wrong when it's not specifically mentioned in the Bible. So you have the passing of years, you have issues um, that are covered in the scriptures But there were so many things, there's no internet, uh, the technology is so different, uh, the world changes a lot, not that sin changes fundamentally in its nature, but cultural expressions of both loyalty to Christ and the things that pull us from loyalty to Christ. They change with the passing of times, and so you you have issues that aren't dealt with in the Scriptures. And... uh, we have to live our lives anchored in this book and also uh, walking through our present culture. How, How do you make that work? And so we're continuing on how to avoid and get out of problems that are caused by our own sinful choices. You'll remember, because we were away from this last Sunday. By the way, how many are here tonight and you weren't here this morning? I'm not picking on you and I'm not going to single you out. I'm just curious whether I need to make a comment. You weren't here this morning. Let me see your hand. Okay, just so you know, we, um, last Sunday, it it comes in little dribs and drabs, but we're right around $190,000 that came in for world missions last Sunday, which we really were uh, thrilled with. So for the month of April, we were... $211,000 and and, uh, change, and that was just an exciting, an exciting thing. All that to say, last week, we were in missions morning and night, so we were away from this series, and we were looking at the different sources of problems, problems that come from living in a fallen world, problems that come from... um, Uh, The sinful actions of others, problems that come from sometimes the chastening hand of God, and problems that come from our own sinful choices. And it's that category right now that we're studying, problems that arise from our own sinful choices. And let me just say one more thing before we kind of launch right into it. It's a mistake to fall into the mindset that just assumes sinful choices are just inevitable. I'm not perfect. It's such a a common assumption in the church today that it's 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 striking to me that it rarely gets confronted. A redeemed person, a redeemed person, has the capacity to grow in holiness and to sin less and less. That should be happening in our hearts. It should actually be the expectation that we have in our hearts. Doesn't mean it's easy. We all live, true enough with uh, you know, varying degrees of cooperation with the Holy Spirit. But sin wasn't and isn't inevitable. Do you, do you remember at the beginning of this series, I talked about um, the three steps to getting out of a mess. And they were confession, belief, and renewed obedience. I spent a whole Sunday night going over those three things. And it's that middle one, Belief. The belief that you, you can live outside of sin's grip. If you don't have that belief, if you just feel it's inevitable, you're convinced of your own future failure, you're already working with a couple strikes against you, you have to have that, that conviction that we used to sing that chorus, we need to sing it more. He is able to keep me from falling. It's from the book of Jude. He's able to do that. In your notes, I, I gave you that brief little chart. A history of man's... I should have put a person. Sorry, ladies. I don't, I don't mean to be sexist. Uh, man's ability to walk in holiness before the Lord. And so I put these four categories. I don't know if you've thought of it this way before. Pre-fall. Before the fall. Able to sin... And able not to sin. After the fall, able to sin, unable not to sin. After redemption, able to sin, able not to sin. Then one day when we're with Jesus, this blessed day, able not to sin and unable. Sin, And by the way, it answers a particular question. Maybe you've had someone come up to you. So here you have, the Bible talks a little bit, with not a lot of detail, about the fall of Lucifer, Satan. So he was an archangel in the presence of God. And he and about a third of the angels, from what we know, rebel and are cast out of heaven. Okay? So... It just makes you wonder. This is, this is in paradise. This is before there is any such being as Satan. Correct? I mean Satan as Satan. I mean Lucifer existed. But this is, this is before he was the devil. All right? So my point here is this, is this is in a place of God's creation where there is no sin. All around the throne of God. Everybody worshiping. It's all light and holy, light I don't mean insignificant, I mean light like in light and holy, and then it gets all messed up. And so it makes you wonder, how, how do we know? So here we go, Jesus comes back, and however you sort out your eschatology, you know, uh, rapture, second coming, millennium, somewhere along the way, where. Eternally with the Lord, eternal state. Here we all are in the Lord's presence, now and forevermore. How do we know that that's not going to happen all over again? It's not. Relax. But how do we know it's not? Well, the answer to that is really a significant thing. There is a significant difference between... um, Lucifer and the angels around the throne in some heavenly place and state glorifying God. But none of those beings that fell ever experienced redemption. What happens What happens through the cross of Christ and the new birth is that we are given a new nature that is different from whatever Lucifer and the angels were created with. Peter tells us that they, they, this idea of you and I being saved, redeemed by the blood of Christ, is something they would love to look into. They don't, they don't, they don't understand in terms of experience that, that that has happened. So you and I will be in a position where we won't be able to sin. And that's totally different from Adam before the fall who was in a state of innocence, and the angelic beings around the throne who were just created by God to worship him. But it'll be different for you and for me. A new nature, a totally new nature. Remember what John says, and it's not said about It was never said about any of the angelic beings. This is never said about any of the angels in heaven. That when we human beings see him, we will be like him. That is a unique feature about us. That we will be be unable to sin. So transformed, so made new. Now, the point of that chart, so those four categories, it isn't just to involve us in, you know, theological hair-splitting. What I, what I want to do is remind us that this, this fight against sin, you see reborn, reborn man, the second category to the right? I'm not saying it's easy, I'm not saying it's inevitable, but I am saying it's possible. It's not an impossible battle that we're in to, to get out of and stay out of sinful situations, I get that from passages like this. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And and you get the impression from Paul that he would be almost shocked at this concept that there were Christian people who just said, well, you know, sin's inevitable and uh, we'll just kind of do the best we can. By no means. We don't go on in sin, Paul says. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God, so we know where this comes from, that you who were once slaves to sin, remember, under, under uh, post fall man, unable not to sin. You who were, that was us, you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This, this teaching, the this stuff like we're doing tonight, really matters. It really matters. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set, set free from sin, Wow. Have become slaves of righteousness. That's, that's not me. That's not my sermon. That's the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's in your Bible. By the way, notice those, this isn't in your notes, but notice those telling words. The standard of teaching to which you were committed. Strange words. Strange way to say it. I would have thought Paul would say the standard of teaching which was committed to you. The standard of teaching that was communicated to you. The standard of teaching we gave you. But no, he says, he says you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He he words it very intentionally. He's, he's trying to emphasize their involvement. In the teaching that they had received. He's saying, you people uh, bought into this. They believed it in action. And he's trying to emphasize that their reception went beyond mere sort of intellectual comprehension or agreement. Amen, Paul. Nice. Good, good stuff. They, they lived this teaching. They, they, they were committed to the teaching. That's what he says. They, they banked on that teaching. What teaching? Well, Paul wants them to come to the conclusion that it is absolutely unreasonable for reborn, regenerated, spirit-indwelt, new new nature-containing Christian people to even remotely consider the option of living the rest of their lives chained and glued to sinful lifestyles. Paul says, no way, that just shouldn't happen. I'm not sure Christians believe that anymore. I'm not sure we even expect it anymore. I don't think we expect it of each other anymore. I think the devil wins an enormous victory, larger than we can ever imagine, if he can convince born-again people, people in whom the very power of the resurrected Christ lives if he can convince them that they're somehow helpless, powerless, resourceless victims of sinful bondage in this present age. And Paul would just say, renounce that. Just renounce that. So today we're continuing our, our study of this issue. What can I do to make righteous decisions when I I can't find the issue in question mentioned anywhere in a biblical text, how do I know? And last week I said there were principles. Eternal, um, cross-cultural, applicable principles, which if you take them, I said take them collectively, not just one of them. That won't work. But taken all together, they can keep the mind clear of confusion and they can keep the life free of bondage. Now, let me just real quick, because it was a couple weeks ago, we studied the principle of excess. Does this action slow me down spiritually, laying aside every weight? The things that hinder, the things that slow me down. It doesn't have to be morally abhorrent. Does it make following Christ harder? Then get rid of it. You don't need it. The principle of expedience, secondly. Is this activity spiritually productive, conducive to spiritual life? Third, the principle of enslavement. You can get these notes, by the way. I, they'll be online. Enslavement. Does this activity have the potential to reduce the control of the Holy Spirit by gaining too deep a place in my time and in my affections. The principle of example. Can this activity become harmful to others even though I can't find anything specifically against it in the Bible? We talked about that. Finally, the principle of evangelism we looked at. Will this activity hinder the rapid embracing of the gospel by those outside the faith? Remember that one because it's similar to something we're going to look at tonight, but a little bit different. So that kind of brings us up to where we are. Tonight I want to look at just a few more general principles. The principle of edification. Does this activity build others up spiritually, especially newer and perhaps weaker believers. I'm going to use a text, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, and you'll recognize if you remember two weeks ago that I read this before, and I want to talk about a slight difference here. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are Helpful. All things are lawful. He means, he means there's, nothing, there's nothing intrinsically you know, that's going to be damning in this activity. It's, it's lawful. It's not against the law, God's law or the law of the land. It's, it's lawful. But not all things build up. And now he's going to explain where he's going with this. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, some of you will notice that I already used this passage under the same principle a couple weeks ago in the principle of evangelism. Because it contains a very precious truth for reaching out in love to the lost. But that's not all it contains. And I want you just to look at the context with me just for a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, if you just back it up, 23, say, to 28, where Paul says, Do you have that text in your notes? All right, so this is a long one, and I just couldn't work it in, but just listen. If you have your Bible, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and I'm just going to keep reading to verse 28. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Okay, so we covered that. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Helpful for whom, and building up whom? Because he's not talking about himself. 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Was this meat offered to idols? That's the issue he's talking about. Because some people are going to be very offended if you eat meat that's been offered to an idol in pagan religion. Paul's already said, I talked about it two weeks ago, it's just meat. He's made that very clear. Demons don't live in the roast. You can go to somebody's house and just eat the meat. It's not an issue. But, but, eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers, okay, it's an unbeliever, invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So now you're with an unbeliever. We talked about that principle of evangelism. Don't go into some house where where a pagan person, not a Christian in any way, shape, or form, puts meat in front of you, and you're going to make a big stink because this maybe was offered to idols. And Paul's saying, you're never going to win a person to the Lord like that. It's just common sense. 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of, Of the one who informed you for the sake of conscience. Now, I want you to notice, you have to look at it carefully, but there are actually two different situations here. First, if you're with an unbeliever, he says, don't make a fuss about the history of the meat that you're being served. It's simply not an issue whether or not it was ever offered to idols. Now, whether it's gone bad or not, that might be an issue. But the fact that it was offered to idols, that's not an issue, Paul says. Don't worry about it. But if you're with somebody else, he says. Someone who raises the issue. Someone who's going to be offended by your eating that meat. Then Paul says, don't touch it. Now, he doesn't go into a lot of detail in that test. But let me ask you to think this through. Let me ask you the question. Who might that offended person be? Who might actually take the effort to ask about or to point out the past history of the meat you're about to eat at the table. The pagan who invited over you over to his house and cooked the meat in the first place? Well, I doubt it. He's not going to mention it. But perhaps, and here's the more likely scenario, Here's the Apostle Paul, he's involved in establishing churches and he sets up pastors in churches and stays for a little while in different cities and, and he goes over to somebody's house and 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 there's a believer who is saved out of a background where idolatry and meat sacrifices offered to idols. And that person might honestly be offended if Paul were to eat that meat someone who's someone who's still very tender about their past and what they've come out of okay Paul says don't sit down and don't sit down and try and lecture them that they're naive and this meat's fine that's not the time and if you're with someone and they bring the issue up and there's something about eating meat offered to idols and you know there's something for the sake of conscience you know there's something troubling that dear brother who doesn't have a lot of theological richness, who is fresh out of a pagan past. Paul says, don't you dare eat that meat. That's not worth it, he says. Isn't there great sense in that? It takes a degree of humility. A proud person will want to straighten that person out. What kind of a knucklehead thinks that meat offered to I... Don't do that. Just leave it alone. Don't be bruising someone who's brand new and just starting to walk. Can you imagine how you see parents with little kids that are just learning to walk and they always take your finger? You notice that? It's a great feeling when one of your grandkids first takes your finger and you walk with them. But can you imagine when someone's just learning to walk? How cruel, especially to someone just starting out. To do this. That's what Paul's saying. This is a new believer. This is a baby in Jesus. He's got all sorts of stuff still crowding in his head. All sorts of questions. All sorts of issues. Don't be messing him up, Paul says. If it's going to hurt his feelings, if he's troubled by this as a follower of Jesus, doesn't fully understand that, you know, there's more to it than just, meat offered here or offered there he doesn't he hasn't got all that framed up yet then be gentle just leave the meat alone and that's where this principle of edification comes into play look again at that verse 23 i think you've got that one all things are lawful but not all things are helpful all things are lawful but not all things build up and when paul says Not all things are helpful. He's not thinking about his own edification. He means, not all the things that I am free to do will edify my fellow believers. He's saying, I don't make my own edification the sole factor in my actions. I seek to bless others. I seek to encourage others. And I flee anything that won't build up believers who are watching how I live and how I respond to them. That's the kind of attitude the body of Christ needs. We're looking out for each other. That principle is also a little bit different. I said you take all these examples, all these principles together. You don't just pick one or two favorites. You use them all together. And that principle of edification, it's a little bit different from the principle of example that we studied two weeks ago. Because in the principle of example, the emphasis is on the negative. I won't do anything that will lead others into situations that might be dangerous to them. I explained two weeks ago how for me, for me, okay, I wasn't making a big a big show about it or anything. But for me, it relates to, to my use of alcohol. And I don't simply because, simply because uh, there are people, I don't want anybody, I don't want anybody to start off drinking alcohol because, well, they saw Pastor Don and Reney out and he had a glass of wine. And, what are you saying? If you have a glass of wine, you're going to hell? No, and if, you, if, if I'm with you and you have a glass of wine, trust me, you're not going to cause me to stumble in any way, shape, or form. God bless you. I don't condemn you in any way. That's great. I'm just saying, as a pastor of a church, I don't want to stand before Jesus and have one person be able to look back and say it was because of him. I just don't want that. That's what I'm talking about in the principle of example. The principle of edification looks at activities, but just from the other end of the stick. What will positively encourage spiritual growth in fellow believers? Secondly, the principle of emulation. Emulation is just a fancy word for can I imitate? Can I imitate Jesus Christ in this activity? Can I imitate Jesus in this? 1 John 2.6 says, Who, Whoever says he abides in him, that is, abides in Christ. You know John 15, branches abiding in the vine, that thing. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in Which he walked. It takes, um, it takes a fair degree, doesn't it, of courage and honesty to use this principle regularly? You would be amazed if you'd just dare to do it with a humble, honest heart. You would be amazed. How faithful the Holy... It doesn't sound very complicated at all. How faithful the Holy Spirit... Who loves to glorify Jesus. How faithfully the Holy Spirit will show you what fits... And doesn't fit in with being like Jesus. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. I've done this. Maybe you have too. Have you ever just sat in your family room just some night and with honesty ask yourself can i really picture jesus watching house of cards with me tonight can i really picture jesus going here would he, would he like the language the sexual innuendo the swearing You, you might feel, have you, have you ever had this experience where you, you watch something, everybody's done this one, you watched a movie, you were watching it in a relaxed way, you thought it was a great movie, and so there you talk to somebody else who went to the church and you said, yeah, you should see it, it's a great movie. And then, and then you thought, oh, no, wait a minute, remember there's this and there's that and there's that. And, and someone else with you changes the way you view it. You ever notice if you're watching something on TV and one of your kids comes down and sits beside you on the couch, you have the remote, you might you might just change the channel. <laughs> now. Now just picture Jesus. Can I imitate Jesus in this? I mean everybody has to apply that. You know what? It's easy to be legalistic. I get it. And everyone has to apply that principle for himself, or for herself. But I'm just saying, in so many situations, even if it's a situation that you can't clearly find in the concordance of your Bible, but in so many situations, you will rarely go wrong if you just say, can I picture Jesus doing this? You will rarely go wrong. It's a simple little thing. Three, we're almost done, not too much more. The principle of revenge. Is there any taint of revenge toward anyone, even way down deep in this activity, in what I'm doing? Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Paul forces us to conclude that every act, even just smudged by vengeance, is an act of unbelief. It's an act of unbelief because I'm saying I don't really believe that God can be trusted to avenge and make right Every wrongdoing that I experience in my life. And if and if I don't even things up, who will? That conclusion is what lies behind the mathematics in this text. How many times can I take any form of revenge against my brother? Not one, Paul says. Not one. Not ever, not in any circumstance, no matter how you feel, not once. Never is Paul's command. Revenge is hard to admit. It's hard to admit because we know about verses like that. I mean, we know what the Bible says. So I can never afford to make vengeance or striking back or hurting someone else. I, I can never afford to make that the obvious reason to what I do. Not even to myself. We, so we spiritualize it. In the body of Christ, we usually spiritualize it. Well, I'm just thinking about the good of the church, Pastor Don. That's why I, I'm going after so-and-so. I'm just, I'm just sharing this with you as a matter of prayer, but do you know what so-and-so did to me? I'm just trying to protect other people from being hurt the way I've been hurt. We can do that. We can do that. And if I carry out just one of those plans under whatever guise I want to manufacture in my own mind, Paul says it's, it's, it's functioning in fundamental unbelief that that is God's job. The protection of my rights is God's job. There is is nothing in the voice of our culture to enforce that understanding on our minds. Our culture admires people who stick up for their rights, we praise people for sticking up for their rights. We honor people who are full of self. And so it's very hard for us to come to a verse like this that just says, you just, you just never worry, never ever worry about getting angry and settling things with anybody. That's not your job. Not once, Don. Not once. You have to believe that God does that. God does that. For the principle of Stewardship. These principles cover all sorts of situations. That's why you take them all together and they cover all of life. Can I demonstrate that I am a faithful steward of my time, talent, and wealth in this activity? Luke sixteen ten to 13. One who is faithful in a very little... Is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So, so Jesus says, um, whether whether it's whether it's moving into the light and the kingdom. Um, spiritual depth and greatness starts with faithfulness in little things, and they compound, and they and that's how you that's how you grow. Most people don't grow because they don't give enough attention to small details. Conversely, people who mess up, people who fall into into deep sin, to to the destruction of their lives and their careers and so many other their marriages and so many other things. It didn't start there. It's it's just a lack of faithfulness in little things that that don't seem all that costly. Who cares? But those things grow into large, large explosions of self-destruction somewhere down the road. We don't appreciate the small things in either direction. That's what he's saying. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and and money. There's so much in that text. I'm not studying that text tonight. But this this idea, this idea that there's this reckoning, that's, that's in that parable from Luke 16, though it's not included in that text. This idea of a master who comes back and, and wants an accounting from a steward who just wasn't faithful with what he had been given. And it's one of the most difficult of all principles to remember. It's easy in this life with our material goods. You, you have a banker. You have an accountant. You have an investment firm. You have a deed to your house. You have a credit card with your name on it. And all of those things... Um, enforce the concept of ownership in our minds. You can't take my house and I can't take yours. Why? I have a title deed to my house. You have one to your house. And so we have ways, we have ways of reckoning and showing what we own. And then you come into the kingdom of God. Here we are. And the first thing you discover about yourself is this. The Bible says you're not an owner of anything. You're a steward. In fact, not only what you have, but you yourself are not your own. Paul says you've been bought with a price. Your body does not belong to you. And mine does not belong to me. So I'm not an owner of anything. I'm a steward of everything. And that truth never registers with many, many, many North American Christians. And here's why. I don't think about this issue of stewardship right now in this present life because there's no accounting of my stewardship right now in this present life. I mean, how seriously would you take a visa bill? It doesn't matter how big it was. How seriously would you take a visa bill that you saw had to be paid in the year 2257? Who cares what's on it? But, and this is the important point, the Bible says that there is an actual moment, an actual time of, and it uses this word, Accounting. We have accountants in our church. They go over books and statements. So my stewardship, my stewardship of, of my material goods, my abilities, limited as they may be, my time. We all get, you know, some will say, I don't have enough time to do that, Pastor Don. Somebody else has time. And you know the funny thing about those two people? They each get exactly the same number of hours in a day. Exactly the same. Everybody has exactly the same amount of time on any given day. Everyone in this room. The Bible says it is, it is required of stewards. This is a quote. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so you stop and you say, you know, if this was Sunday morning, I'd underline that. And I'd say, required by whom? Who requires stewards be found faithful? Well, God does. It's a requirement. Required when? Well, when Jesus comes again or or when I die, there will be an accounting, there will be an audit this is the audit. You don't need to worry about the IRS. What you need to worry about is this audit. God will perform an audit of, of my life, yours. He will want an accounting of how I use my wealth to extend his kingdom. He will want to know, did Don Horbin, did he, did he, did he take all of his money and build a lifestyle that required all that money? Or did he have this much money and say, I'm going to live on this much, so I have this much to invest in God's kingdom? How did I do that? Well, right now, you don't know. And I don't have to give an account. But the Bible says that one day, every one of us will have to give an account. A principle of stewardship So each day of my life, I'm to demonstrate, I'm to This this relates just to, again, everybody has to apply this to himself or to herself. It's easy for someone to legalistically say how much someone else should spend. And that's absurd. Don't let somebody do that. But an intelligent, thoughtful Christian does at some point have to stop and say, how much how much, how much do I need to look after me? <laughs> Given the shortness of time and the length of eternity and the responsibilities in Christ's kingdom, how much do I have to spend on myself? And that number will be different for all of us. And I can't, I can't tell you what your number should be. But I know this, the tendency is to think that no matter what I... Have you noticed this, by the way, if someone had come up to you 25 years ago? Now this, maybe some of you weren't born 25 years ago, but I'm saying people who have been around. If someone had come up to you 30 years ago and said, here's what your income is going to be in the year 2015. In all likelihood, you would have said, wow, what am I going to do with all that money? And yet here you are in 2015 and you go home and you think, how in the world am I going to live on this? And you see what happens, how expectations just rise to meet with whatever we have coming in. But that's just the expansion of a lifestyle around self and that's the opposite of the principle of stewardship. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Everybody got what I'm saying? Anybody get what I'm saying? All right, good. Lastly... The principle of my body is God's temple. Does this activity demonstrate the Lord's control of my physical body as his creation and dwelling place, or does it demonstrate my own preference and desires? 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. So here here you sit, and we've been taught this since we were kids. Does that register with you that as you sit in that chair, that the third person of the creator of the universe is in you? It's stunning. He's in you. Whom you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. We have that cross up at the front of the church. So the conclusion is you have to glorify God in your body. You can fulfill your own desires or you can glorify God. If your body were your own, you could do what you wanted with it. But it isn't, he says. Your body is something you live in. You're a renter in your body. Not an owner. You're just a renter. One day you have to leave it. This principle has to be factored into whenever we talk about personal rights. Our world worships personal rights. The Lordship of Jesus obliterates personal rights. This is intensely practical. I know it's complicated. I know it's not easy. We'll do some more principles next week. That took enough time. But think of a Christian now. Think about a born-again Christian in this really confusing time who sits down and feels um, he's following Jesus, belongs to church, and feels in his heart that he's attracted to the same sex. Okay? And so comes to the conclusion, comes to the conclusion that that he he will will identify himself. He will will assign his own sexual identity by the desire he feels in his heart. It happens all the time. He will assign, self assign his own sexuality his own sexual identity by the desires he feels in his heart. And what I'm saying is, for the Christian, I'm, not ta- I'm talking about for the Christian, the one following Jesus, I'm saying, if it is true, think of the implications, if it is true that your physical body and all that goes along with it does not belong to you, think about that for a minute. What that means is, you do not get to decide your sexual identity, isn't that what it means? If it's not yours, this body isn't yours. You don't get to determine your sexual identity; it is assigned creationally, biologically, anatomically. And that's something that that God decides. It's, it's the same thing for the guy who there's there's the guy who feels like he would he would. Um, he would love to have sexual relationships with other women besides his wife. And he honestly feels like that's his desire. And we would say, but, that's nice, but but you don't, you don't get to act on those desires. Even if you wanted to. Even if you feel inclined to. We would say, but you don't get to. Why? Because you're not your own. It's the same principle. This is a, a huge principle. When we start to sort out actions, decisions, inclinations, desires to remember that what we have principle of stewardship and who we are in our bodies the principle of ownership those play out huge when you're making ethical decisions on situations that maybe aren't covered in the scripture those ones that i talked about are but even in situations that aren't so keep all these principles at hand and they will help to steer your life and to keep it on track let's pray together